When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yes, here we are off the weekend yet again. Another edition of the Fight Freaks Unite recap as part of the Big Fight Weekend podcast feed. Great to be back aboard. I am, hey, the little more capable host off this weekend with some correct prognostication for short-term investment purposes. TJ Reeves, he is our insider, our content partner, bigfightweekend.com. You read him also with the Fight Freaks Unite Substack. He is Dan Rayfield back aboard. We learned some things in Minnesota uh, that were really good for Isaac Dogbay and also for Giovanni Cabrera that were not so good for Joette Gonzalez and especially for Gabe Flores losing to Cabrera. We'll get into all that. First of all, Dan, how you feeling? How are things as we come off of the weekend? Good weekend. Nice, quiet weekend with a little bit of action. Not but much. Big, yeah, I mean, it was, it's, it's as we've discussed, it's the dog days of summer, the next few weekends. I mean, there are some fights, but nothing that's uh, rises to the level of, uh, you know, uh, superstar level card. I mean, no, don't get me wrong. And I'll, we'll get into this later, uh, you know, in the, in the next podcast. I'm looking forward to the return of Danny Garcia. And, and there's some other fights coming down the pike. But uh, uh, we're now in the we're in the throes of the dog days. Not a lot going on. You know, I got Virgil Ortiz coming back in a couple of weeks. But it's uh, it's not a lot happening right now. And, uh, you know, just the way it is. No, no biggie. Everybody take a deep breath. That's the one thing I learned about boxing when I first started to cover this, TJ, is that you don't realize it at the time. There's no off-season in boxing. It's a 20 for uh, tw- well, sometimes 24 hours a day, but a 12 month a year sport. Sure. But there's a couple of times a year where there are at least not, not a true off season, but there's always a few weeks in the summer where it slows down, obviously. And then, uh, you know, it gets a little bit slower, say like right around Christmas. Although in the last couple of years, promoters have blown through that and done cards, uh, you know, in those weeks as well. But uh, right now we're at about as close as it gets to a boxing off season. And there are still, you know, televised matches and such. Some stuff here and there that we will go over. We pledge to do that on the recap show. By the way, again, however you found us, social media link uh, through Dan Substack, through BigFightWeekend.com. Thank you for doing that. Make sure you're following or subscribing because you will get this automatically. Usually the recap out late Sunday. You have it ready to go for Monday, Monday morning, Monday afternoon to give us a listen. More and more of you are finding us. Thank you for doing so. One more call out to the peeps to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts because we're about to do a July giveaway for the Devin Haney, George Cambosis poster. Dan is a great collector. I, again, joke with him all the time. He's going to open the Dan Rayfield Museum. I don't know if I'm going to be the curator of that museum of all of his memorabilia from posters uh, to fight tickets to programs to great artifacts from the sport. And you've got an extra poster 
uh, from Haney Cambosis in Australia that you procured, and you're going to give it to one of the peeps at random. Anybody that has rated and reviewed this podcast since the beginning of June, now all the way through July, somebody at random, we're going to draw, they're going to win the poster, we're going to send it to you. Yes, we are bribing you, but it's a good bribe, Dan Ray. And by the way, I even already have an idea once we're done with the Cambosis and Haney poster giveaway. I have a good idea for the next one after that. That'll be fun. Really? Yes, you sir. Want to tease us with a breadcrumb. No, you sir. Want to tease us with an era. Is this a modern era? Oh, or yeah. You know, it's mo- it's mo- I mean, what, what do you consider modern? Like, it's like, let's say 2000s. This is a 2000 oh, yeah, item yeah. or is it before yes, that? 2000s, 2000s. By the way, while we digress, and I need to put an item up on bigfightweekend.com, I need you to confirm something before we get into the recap of the ESPN Plus top-ranked show in Minnesota. Dog Bay, again, the winner in the main event uh, in the featherweight battle. Did you see today, today or this weekend, that the owner of the Indianapolis Colts, and I, I can say this, I work in the National Football League, and obviously the Colts won a Super Bowl with Peyton Manning. They've had some success back and forth. Jim Ursay is is as eccentric and nutty an owner as there is for a lot of different reasons, not the least of which is he'll put social media uh, of him like in a bathing suit playing an acoustic guitar. He does <laughs> does different things. Did you see the item on the weekend that he bought an item? He bought one of Muhammad Ali's WBC heavyweight title belts, apparently two in existence. He has bought one of the two. The other one is in on Ali Hall of Fame. Maybe it's in Louisville, the Boxing Hall of Fame, somewhere. I have to confess to the audience, as soon as I saw the article, I thought, did Rayfield sell that to Jim Ursay of the Colts? <laughs> did Rayfield have the Muhammad Ali green WBC belt that he sold? You are confirming on Fight Freaks Unite recap, you, you are not the seller. You did not sell that for the six. I can put it to you like this. If I was the seller, I think it went for what, like $6 million? $6 million. I can assure you, my friend, that if I was the seller, I would be elsewhere besides doing this podcast. You would not be doing the podcast with TJ. That's a great point. I would still do it with you, but I probably, after 24 (laughs) hours after the sale, I might take the night off, if you know what I mean. Uh Uh, Jim Ursay is a a guy who has bought a variety of memorabilia pieces, and it's not his first boxing memorabilia. He, I believe, has the robe from um i believe i, think I, can't it, remember I think which, it's like the shoe i read the article shoes from the thriller in manila and it may be the it's the road from fraser one god i, I mean, mean well, and that's a fantastic that, piece look there was, i mean how okay first of all how if you are the boxing hall of fame or a hall of fame do you not grab one of those things for yourselves and have it well, on display maybe ursay is going to do his own muhammad ali hall of fame with those the hall items. of fame unfortunately the, the folks in canastota yeah. Uh, they have a, a lot of fantastic pieces in their collection that are on display for the public. And they have a ton of stuff that's not on display that they try to rotate. They just have too much that they wow. can't show all at once. Uh, but they don't make a lot of money. It's not a right. money-making endeavor. It's, it's, this has been done by the brofies and by the folks that run the place, you know, just for the pretty, I mean, they make a nominal amount of money and they're able to support themselves, but it's not a giant moneymaker. And it's, uh, it's done, it's done, it's been done for the last you know few decades out of the love uh, of curating the history of this great sport. So they don't have that kind of money to go out and buy these items for the collection. And by the way, other halls of fame, other, you know, certainly the Cooperstown hall of fame, you know, where baseball is, I was actually watching some of the induction ceremonies today, right. uh, as we speak here on Sunday evening, um, they don't buy material. They are, uh, uh, able to put all these incredible items because the players and the teams and the managers and all the folks that have this stuff, they donate it or they put it on loan. Uh, 
you know, and right. it would be a beautiful thing if Jim Ursay, who I've never met, I don't know, uh, I love his uh, his taste and memorabilia. If uh, if he did, you know, put it up in the, in a, in the Hall of Fame for uh, display purposes, but there was over the weekend the conclusion of a heritage auction, which had a gargantuan amount of Muhammad Ali material. A lot of it from one particular collector who had curated his own collection for decades and decades. And I will say, as a person who has collected boxing memorabilia for the better part of uh, Boy, I've been collecting memorabilia since the since the mid '80s, probably. So, what you know, over 30 years, um, and I've looked at a lot of auction catalogs and a lot of auction websites and seen a lot of stuff go up for sale. I've bought some stuff over the years from those types of auctions. This was the most mind blowing thing I've ever seen really? in boxing, and it was pretty much all related to Ali. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm sad to say I, I had a few items that I was tracking and bidding, but I didn't win anything, unfortunately. But there were some remarkable pieces. So give me pieces. an example or two besides the belt that you were intrigued by, just while we digress for one more moment. What well, the belt was, was not something that was not something I would even, I, right. I, you know, if, like I said, if I had six million to spend on a belt, we wouldn't be doing a podcast. <laughs> That's the first thing. <laughs> or we'd be doing a different podcast. That's, That's for sure. sure. Yeah. No, but in terms of things that were more affordable, when I not six million, I'm talking about things that might cost like, you know, at the most, low thousands. You know what I mean? Like um, what? Like a pair of used gloves from one of no, the title I don't, you fights? Know, listen, or what else, the, what else was the there? Things, of all the things I've collected, like the, the, the fight used memorabilia, the gloves, the trunks, the robes, that's never really been my thing. Okay. I do have a beautiful item from Arturo Gatti that was used in a fight that was uh, given to me by the Gatti camp, you know, many, many years ago, which I treasure. But it's never been the type of thing I've sought out. I'm more of the poster program card type of guy and in this particular auction there was a, an assortment of just phenomenal amounts of programs posters and tickets from alley fight so i was uh, very intrigued by the the various site posters that were uh being auctioned from the thriller in manila which is a very uh, there's a couple different ones but they're they're pretty they're pretty hard to find in nice condition um, and these were looking good there was material from again posters and programs from ali's uh, final match of his career against trevor burbick the poster is mm. pretty scarce. There's three different versions. I do not have one. Uh, those types of things. There was a beautiful ticket from the uh, a, 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 a graded ticket from the full ticket from the Zaire fight that was phenomenal. The Rumble and, in the uh, Jungle. Rumble in the Jungle, exactly. So you know, I was I was watching some of those auctions, but uh, you know, very cool that that people can now have Did that in their collection. Did you find it fascinating that the uh, the belt had sold a couple of times previously for like three hundred thousand dollars? What's yep. a few hundred thousand among friends? Like hundred eighty thousand dollars, and this yep. guy got six million. The collector that had it now for that single item, that WBC belt. I mean, that, that does kind of blow me away. That you know, and I'm not listen any kind of memorabilia. It's what, and this is the same with anything. It's what somebody's willing to pay. That's exactly and, and, right. And, and the thing in an auction, you only need two people to make it go bananas. You don't need 20, 30, 50, 100 people. You need two people with deep pockets who have a desire to own that piece of material, whatever it may be, a, a belt, a card, a robe, a trunk, a, a program, whatever it is. And uh, obviously um, there was at least two people that really, really wanted to own that belt. Now that is a great piece of history. Uh, all that said, though, there are other items. If you said to me you could have a piece of Muhammad Ali memorabilia, what would it be that you want? I, I mean, having his championship belt is pretty cool, particularly coming off of uh, arguably his most historic victory against Foreman in the in the Rumble in the Jungle. Uh, would that be the first thing I would pick if I if I had if you said you have an open slate, go pick a pick pick a a, a fight user 
I'm not talking about a program or a card or, or a poster, right. but if you could have something from an Ali fight, whether it's a robe, a trunks, a gloves, shoes, a belt, whatever, you know, I don't think that his title belt from the Rumble in the Jungle would necessarily be high on my list. It's certainly not at a six million dollar uh, amount of money because his the gloves from the Frazier fight sold for a fraction of that, you know, a few years ago and have been sold a couple of times. Um, so you could buy for six million dollars. You could probably buy multiple beautiful pieces from historic fights, whether it's from Sonny Liston fight, the Frazier fights, the obviously the Foreman fight. The, the robe, I just saw this again. The robe actually that Ursay bought is from the second Sonny Liston fight, the rematch, the one the one round controversial rematch, Lewiston, Maine, 1965. That's the robe. The the shoes are from the Thrilla in Manila against Frazier, which came after the Foreman fight. The Foreman fight is where he got the WBC belt. They started giving the WBC mm -hmm. green belt. So it's just interesting on. Uh, but on it's a pretty cool. Items. It's a pretty cool. Uh, you know, I'll say this. I hope that Jimmy Ursay, uh, if you're listening out there, Jimmy, please take a picture and and send it to me on social media. Because if it was me, you, you can be damn sure I'd be making sure that you know. I, I, I like wrap that. I'd make my son wear the belt. I'd throw it over my shoulder. Like I always said, like if I won like somebody's trunks or robes, like I'd be like lounging on my couch, watching TV in the robe. You know what oh, I mean? And you got the, and you got the Ali green belt. I thought of one thing and I promise we're moving on on the fight freaks unite. Recap oh, this podcast. is fun to talk about. I like this. Okay. Stuff. Hang in here with me. So in, in my trip, in my travels, and you know, this, I have done a bunch of national radio with Fox sports radio, with Sirius XM, with tune in. I've done a bunch of different projects, a bunch of different things. I've had a, a, a unique opportunity to interview a lot of famous different sports personalities. This has always stuck with me because I interviewed him around Olympic time in 2008, which is now my Lord, 14 years ago. I got the chance to interview Mark Spitz. Now, if you don't know your history with the Olympics and or swimming, Mark Spitz smashed every swimming record at the Olympics in 1972 for the United States. He was uh, Michael Phelps before there was yes, Michael Phelps. Yes, absolutely. And there have been other swimmers like Michael Phelps and some others that have done great. But Mark Spitz won not one, Dan Rayfield, not two, seven seven olympic gold medals at the same olympics that had never been done by any individual in any sport in any olympics he did winter or summer by the way right it's at that time and it may still be the record i don't know if phelps ever got to seven in a single olympics we'd have to look or if anybody else got to seven for example i just happen to know olympic trivia like you you rattle off boxing trivia eric Hyden, the speed skater in Lake Placid, New York, the year the U.S. hockey team won the gold medal, he won five speed skating gold medals, five of them himself, not relay races in 1980. I by the way, I grew, I grew up uh, you right know, by there. a couple hours couple hours from Lake Placid. Okay, so I don't know that anybody's won seven since he was the first guy to, or female, to win seven in Olympics. Anyway, so we get to the interview with Spitz, and I'm, I'm loosening him up. We're not sitting in the same room. The technology is different where I am hooked to him. Uh, you know, essentially by uh, radio ISDN where he can't see me, but I get him to start loosening up and we start talking about different things. And I finally ask him the question, which is, where are the seven gold medals from the Munich Olympics? I said, do you keep them in the house? Do you have them in a safety deposit box? He goes, he goes man, he goes, I have them in a bank vault in the bank here in Southern California. And that's where they have been since the early seventies. He said, I, there are occasions in which I've taken him out. And he said at that time in 2008, maybe a half dozen times he has ever taken the actual seven gold medals out of the bank vault for whatever reason to do something for an Olympic documentary, a party, whatever. 
what he does do is he has the replicas in his house. They are not the real gold medals. So people will come over to his house, as he explained it, people would come over to his house, where are the gold medals? And he put them on them. And he even had the, uh, he said, I had the Olympic theme, like on a, on a, uh, on a playback where I would play the Olympic theme. Da, 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 yeah. da, da, da. And, he, and we would start putting the gold medals on people. He goes, and I would never tell them these are not the real gold medals. No, these So I don't know if these ones. are replicas or not, but like, for example, like I have been to the golden boy offices in downtown okay. Los Angeles. Okay. And when you come into the golden boy office on the one wall on the left-hand side is a long glass case. And it's filled with all kinds of incredible memorabilia from Oscar's, uh, Oscar De La Hoya's career. It's got championship belts and robes and pictures. And it's really beautiful the way they did it. And the centerpiece, uh, which, and this is a story, you know, goes back many permutations, but he originally had given the gold medal to Bob Arum, part of one of the settlements in there with some lawsuits. He got the gold medal back. Anyway, the gold medal is on display as one of the centerpieces. Wait, in this. wait, wait. Can I back up for a second? I don't know this story. What would possess you in any kind of negotiation or settlement to give your gold medal as part of a settlement to somebody no, he, else? He had given the medal uh, to Bob and then got it back as part of a settlement. Why would you have given? I, you're asking your me to one, psychoanalyze Oscar De La Hoya. Your one and only gold medal. Why would you give no that idea. to anybody other than your family? That eludes me. Continue no on, idea. please. Your point anyway. is walking down that hallway. So, but the point is in that where that medal is. It never dawned on me that maybe that's not the real metal, that maybe it's a replica. So now fast forward, or maybe back, I forget when this was, but I went to cover, um, I believe it was Canelo Alvarez against Liam Smith okay. at the uh, AT&T Stadium in Arlington, Virginia. And, and that fight week, I met for the first time in person, Claressa Shields, okay. who had won two Olympic gold medals. And she was there. Uh, she had, I don't think she had turned pro yet. She was in the process of going through the, uh, you know, with her, with her team of, of about to turn pro hadn't signed with the promoter. Uh, I, I think she may have just started working with uh, Mark Taffet, her manager, who I know for, you know, over 20 years, mostly from when he was uh, in, you know, in charge of HBO pay-per-view for so many years. And so anyway, so I have a picture of myself with Clarissa and she brought with her again, I think they're the real deal, but she was wearing her two Olympic gold medals that she had won in the back-to-back Olympic games. And again, I, I have to assume they were real, but maybe they were replicas. But if they weren't, unlike Mark Spitz, hers were not in a in a uh, safe deposit box. And she <laughs> sure as heck didn't have seven, but she had two gold medals. And uh, but I've seen others. Like I remember when I think it was when uh, when uh, Andre Ward wore the gold medal right. around to some some public appearances. Or Stevenson, he had a silver medal that he had at some public appearances when he first turned professional. Um, I saw. Uh, Richard Torres Jr., the right. uh, United States silver Keyshawn medal. Sean Davis. So when when uh, when I had seen, I forget what fight it was. I was in Las Vegas in uh, the MGM Grand in the normal media center in that ballroom A and B. And this is before Richard had signed with Top Rank. He was there. I think it was when Deontay Wilder um, fought Tyson Fury the third fight. He right. hadn't yet signed, and he was there. He's sort of being quartered by top rank, and I think talking to PBC also, but he was a welcome guest in the so press in room. So in that timeline, that was October of last year, Torres yes. would have won the uh, silver medal in, in August in, to in Tokyo. Okay, yeah. So he was there with his father, Richard Sr., uh, and in the in the press room, and I had a chance to interview him and talk to him and meet them, and, uh, you know, very nice people. And again, he was there. He had the medal with him, uh, showing it off to everybody who wanted to see it. He was walking around with the medal on, so... 
you know, it was pretty cool. So I've, I've seen a lot of, I've seen a lot of Olympic boxing medals, I guess, in my day. And uh, there's probably others I'm not even thinking of. If I had to wager, Oscar's real Olympic gold medal is not in the hallway of the offices. I bet it's secure somewhere else, and I bet that's a replica. But this is a homework assignment for you to find that out somehow, <laughs> some way. Because you've had Oscar on the podcast already with Fight Freaks Unite and our podcast feed here. That is, you have contact with him. You could find that out, and maybe he won't give that up. Maybe he won't admit whether that's a replica or not. But if I had to- I could just, I could just when we're done, that. I could text him and ask him and say, you know, me and uh, uh, my <laughs> man TJ were having this conversation that led to Olympic gold medals. And I was wondering, is that gold medal that hangs on that uh, and that beautiful uh, case in your office, is that the real deal or is that the replica? Good to know. If we, But again, for Spitz, it was hilarious that he just deadpanned um, that that's where they are. But yet he still entertains with people. And uh, I just uh, hope that Ursay, if he was out barbecuing today, he should, <laughs> he should have that. He should have that. that or maybe he doesn't have it quite yet. They have to send it to him. But when he gets it in the next few days or whatever. I hope that like next week and he's barbecuing with his people at his house and he's out there and he's got the belt wrapped around his waist that I need to see. Cause I just one more while we digress on this, that is quite the moment and has always been quite the moment for fighters uh, to be able to do this. And I still remember we referenced Buster Douglas on the preview podcast Friday, because we were talking about Andy Ruiz. You had your one-on-one interview with Andy Ruiz and getting all the belts, but I still remember Buster Douglas now 32 years later in that post-fight interview with Larry Merchant, where they had gone and grabbed the green WBC belt. One of his handlers had gone and grabbed that belt because there was all the controversy after the fight where Don King was saying, oh, it was a long count. This is in dispute. We're not, he's not the champion yet, blah, blah, blah. Well, they, they grabbed, possession is what? Nine-tenths of the law. They grabbed exactly. the WBC belt. And in the middle of that live interview, they are bringing the belt over and put it over his shoulder, and he's going, oh, oh. He stops the interview, and he says, put it on me. Put it on me. And he's almost in tears, and he says, Larry, I've been watching you guys put belts on fighters for all these years, and I have dreamed of this moment. Put the belt on me. He's saying to his people, put the belt on me. That's how And by the way, that that Ali belt that Ursay won, that's like the old-school WBC belt. And I actually learned a little bit about it not that long ago because at one of the recent fights in Vegas that the WBC was involved with, they had a separate side room where the media center was, and they had a display where they had pictures and physical belts of the evolution of the way the WBC mm-hmm. belt has looked. So the belt that Ali had that Ursay won in that auction, it's got the green, obviously, is this is the common uh, thread there. But if you look, there are a few different versions of the WBC belt over the years. Uh, and they had them on display there with the different looks that they had. And, you know, they're pretty cool. So, you know, uh, whatever you think of the sanctioning bodies, it's always been my opinion. The WBC belt itself, the actual physical belt, has always been the nicest looking of the world championship belts. And most distinctive because it's got the green strap and the whole bit. And now the owner of the Indianapolis Colts has the belt, and I agree with you. I echo you. I want to see him with the belt on, social media photo. Why do I get the feeling that we're not going to we're not gonna have to wait too long? We're going to probably see that coming up. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. 
And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Okay, here's let's get down to business. Here's what we're here for. Uh, I will say here at the outset, I pegged both of the winners. It is a rare occasion where I pegged both of the winners, and Mr. Rayfield didn't get either winner, and both but, of these cases were upsets. They were upsets. But we both, we, we both got the over. That's correct. Both were both decisions. I, I, okay, let's get into it right now first with the main event, top-ranked show in Minnesota. Isaac Dog Bay wins and wins impressively and uh, wins dramatically, I should say. Uh, in defeating Joette Gonzalez. Again, this was not a title fight, but it was a very competitive fight like we thought it would be. Dan, what are your thoughts real quick, including a dramatic in-between the ninth and 10th final round in Dog Bay's corner and then a dramatic 10th round, as it turns out? Well, yes, it was not a title fight, as you mentioned. What it was, and I clarified this with uh, Mauricio Suleiman uh, via text message earlier today because I just was never sure because it's always been that, that title eliminators are 12 rounds. This was a 10-round fight. The WBC is, in certain instances, reducing from 12 to 10 if it, the fighters have the option to go 10 or 12. But regardless, the final eliminators would be a 12-round fight. This was a semi-final eliminator. So Dog Bay achieves a higher rating now and puts him in a great position in the WBC rankings, but he would most likely have to fight another elimination fight to get the mandatory position to fight for the world title. But it's a, it's a great position for him. He moves a step closer to a mandatory fight against uh, uh, the, the newly crowned WBC featherweight uh, title holder, which is Ray Vargas, who won that belt from Mark Magsayo on a decision about two weeks ago. And so Dog Bay now is in a good position. That's a, you know, that's an interesting fight, Dog Bay and Vargas. Vargas is 35-0 and 0 or 36-0, whatever he is, and, you know, and uh, now has that belt. But that's a little ways off. He's not the mandatory. But he's in a great position. Uh, you talk about the the uh, first of all, as we expected, a, a very entertaining fight, first and foremost. If you tuned in, uh, you did not waste your time to watch that. These were two good quality professionals, maybe not superstar pros, but good quality contenders fighting each other for some stakes. And uh, they put on a good show. Um, the problem for Joe at Gonzalez was he gave away the first three rounds of that fight was not. He got blown out basically in the first three rounds. He didn't win them no question about it. And if you looked at the official cards, they reflected that where all three judges gave him all three rounds. So now he's in, uh, gave uh, Dog Day all the first three rounds. So now Joette Gonzalez is certainly, uh, you know, behind the eight ball, so to speak, particularly given that it's only a 10 round fight, but he came back in the fight and it was close, competitive all the way. And now you have a situation where everybody knows this is a close fight. You know, they've taken turns. They've both had good moments. They both uh, put on a good display of offense and, and some defense. And so Dog Bay goes back to the corner after round nine. He is now in his fourth fight with Barry Hunter as his head trainer. Remember, there was a very difficult decision for Isaac after he lost the junior featherweight title to uh, Navarrete and lost again by knockout in the yep. rematch. You know, he made the decision, and this is never easy. Uh, switching trainers is one thing, but when your trainer is your father and you tell him you're gone, that's a difficult situation. But to pr preserve his career at some high level – he made that choice and he parted ways with his father as the trainer and he brought in Barry Hunter. Now I have known Barry Hunter who lives here in the area where I live in Northern Virginia 
uh, you know, he's a DC guy. Uh, Barry is just, in my opinion, has always been one of the top trainers in boxing. He's been a great uh, trainer to many of the amateurs as part of, you know, a team U, um, of USA Boxing. Just, just a, a tremendous uh, person and a, and a hell of a trainer. And he's got Dog Bay having bought into whatever his uh, program is, so to speak. So he told him, he says, listen, he told him, A, he told him the truth. All through the fight, he was telling him the truth. But in the ninth round, going into the 10th round, he said, we need this round. You have to win this round. You know, we've been here before. Let's get this done. I, and and, the, and I, if you read my story on bigfightweekend.com or on mm -hmm. my Substack uh, uh, newsletter, Fight Freaks Unite, I quoted the exact uh, exchange. It wasn't really exchange. It was Barry talking. The one key thing in there was, I've never asked you for nothing. I need you to give me these next three minutes. We need any, he really, that was like his Angelo Dundee moment of your yes. blowing son against yes. Sugar Ray Leonard and Teddy Alice against Michael Moore, you know, uh, whatever against Evander Holyfield. And, uh, you know, Isaac Dogbay clearly took that to heart and he went out in the 10th round and he landed, he threw 109 punches. I believe it was based on coffee box, which was, you know, for the last round of the fight, throw over a hundred punches. It's pretty damn impressive. Um, it was the second highest total of, of output for the fight. He landed like more than 20 shots. Uh, he landed and threw more than, 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 uh, Joette Gonzalez did in the, in the final round. And he won the third, the 10th round on all three scorecards. And that enabled him to win a split decision because if Joette Gonzalez wins the 10th round, the fight turns out to be a majority draw. So, you know, kudos to Barry Hunter, a great trainer and a great person. And kudos to Isaac Dogbay for listening uh, to exactly what the trainer said. We need the 10th round. He got the 10th round. It gave him the victory in this highly important fight. Two things about that. Love that. Love the reference to Angelo Dundee in the ear of Sugar Ray Leonard with the left eye swelling. You're blowing it, son. You're blowing it. You got nine minutes left. Love that. Remember that forever. We'll remember that forever. This was reminiscent of that, as you mentioned. I also like, too, right before he got off the apron, because I went back and rewatched it one more time, he says, I believe you can do this. And he yes. looks right at him. I believe in you. And Dog Bay's looking up and looking right back at him. Like, like there's a, almost a surrogate father there reassuring. Oh, and, and Isaac. Yes. Yeah. Reassuring. Isaac said that, that referred to him as a, I mean, he still has his father, but he referred to, uh, to Barry in his, in his post fight interview on, on, uh, the ESPN plus broadcast referring to Barry as somewhat of a father figure. And that's the way Barry's been with a lot of the guys he's trained. Look, he, he did it with the Peterson brothers, Lamont, Lamont Peterson and Anthony Peterson. Who were, who were young boys when he basically rescued them from the streets of Washington, D.C., and took them, him and his wife took them in and basically made them part of their family uh, before just molding them into the boxers and the young men that they became. Uh, and he, I'm not saying he's had that kind of relationship with Dogway, but that's the way he is. Like he's not all trainers. For some trainers, it's a job, which is fine. Some, they make it more personal. I mean, I, I was close with Emmanuel Stewart for a long time before he passed. Uh, another great trainer and great person. And Emmanuel was the same way. He didn't just go and train these guys. Now he was a hired gun for some fighters and they brought him in because of his experience and he didn't develop them, but you know, they knew that he was uh, a great tactician and motivator and everything. But even those guys, he had these, these fighters, they would live in his apartment. They would, they would, he would let them live with him in Detroit. Like I, I've known Andy Lee, the former middleweight contender, and then later won a world title. He was with Emmanuel for, for many years. When Andy, came from Ireland to the United States to, to begin his career and make a name in the United States and didn't turn pro back in, uh, in Europe. 
what did he do? He lived with Emmanuel in his house. And that's not the only guy. Michael Moore lived for years with him mm-hmm. in his house. Tommy Hearns lived with him in the house. I think I think there was a period of time, uh, you know, where where Emmanuel had, you know, several fighters living with him and Emmanuel paid, you know, for for things for them. And it was not, it was more than a job for him. It was that was the lifestyle. It was about molding a these father young men. figure, a father yes. figure that they needed to help support them mold financially them into and champions. Yes. And mold them into, young, you know, to uh, to quality young men. And uh, Barry, you know, it's, it's a different kind of style and obviously has a lot of different uh, things than, than Emmanuel did. But it's the same concept. And a man and, and Dog Bay bought into it and uh, they won a big fight together. It's, that was an no important doubt. victory for Dog Bay. All right. Two more important points about this. Then I want to move on to the core feature before we're done on Fight Freaks Unite here. One. Uh, look, I, I enjoy him. Uh, he is a talented fighter, but I, I think there's legitimate concern on Dog Bay. Is he big enough to be at 126, much less any bigger? He's smaller. The next thing is he doesn't box. He doesn't move a lot. He wants to stand and trade, and he doesn't seem to have huge punching power. And I, I even heard Tim Bradley saying this, too. This is really a concern about him standing in there and trading. You got to have punching power to do that. Give me your opinion on that dog base style. How long can he last at the higher level with that style when he doesn't have great size, great punch? And what do you think happens next for him? Two parts there on that go. Well, as far as the style goes, I mean, he is who he is. I mean, you, you know, he's not a guy that's uh, 18 years old coming to the pros, you know, with a limited amateur background. He was an Olympian. He's been around for a while. You know, the, the trainer barrier, whoever has him can, can do things to help refine the style, you know, and they talked about on the broadcast and Barry said it in the, in the corner at one point earlier in the fight, you know, he's been teaching him more defense and, and, and said defense, defense, defense. And so, you know, it's not, Rome is not built in a day. Um, if he does, if he does uh, sure up his defense a little bit better, he will definitely be around a lot longer, but from our standpoint as viewers and fans, you know, if you want to be selfish, we like the Isaac dog that fights that way. You know, there are certain guys, who know how to box but like to fight. That's why I was a big Meldrick Taylor fan. That's why I was a big Shane Mosley fan. And, and there are others. Guys who had superior boxing skills, but they like to get in there and fight. Oscar De La Hoya was like that. You know, he could outskill most guys, but he also had the the mentality he wanted to stand in there and, and fight sometimes. And, you know, that's uh, Isaac Dogby. I'm not saying he's at the level of a Sugar Shane or a or an, or an Oscar De La Hoya or even a Meldrick Taylor, but he has the mentality where he's a capable boxer, given that deep amateur background and everything he's done as a professional, but his inclination is to stand and fight. And so I think what Barry's trying to do is get him to do that a little bit less. And if you can get him to do that a little bit less, it probably uh, bodes for a longer, more productive career. In terms of whether or not he belongs in the featherweight division, I don't see him going back to junior featherweight. The reality of the, the business side of things and just in terms of his lifestyle, 126 is where he's going to be feast or famine is the way I look at it. And, uh, you know, he won an important fight. He's now in a good position to eventually get a title fight. Now that's not going to come next. So they'll have to see if there's another eliminator that comes around, that's going to be a final eliminator, uh, being with top rank, they will do a fine job of finding him an appropriate opponent, you know, probably next, you know, five, six months from now for his next fight and be in a similar kind of situation on one of these, uh, ESPN televised cards. I don't expect his next fight necessarily to be some big hoopla kind of fight. He's going to have to stay busy. They're going to position him and uh, we'll see, but he's in a great position is the point. And by the way, after the way he looked losing the first fight with Navarrete and then getting basically beat down and stopped in round 12 of the rematch, the fact that he's come back and now won four fights in a row 
against decent opposition. And then particularly with the way he performed, especially in the final round against Joe Gonzalez, Dog Bay is, uh, you know, he, he's, he's back as a contender in the featherweight division. And even Joe Gonzalez, I mean, it's, a, it's another tough loss for him. Um, but it was super close. I mean, it really could have gone either way. I was actually trading some text messages today with Frank Espinosa, who was Joette's manager, who asked me how I had the fight. And I said, you know, I could certainly see it 6-4 either way. I definitely could have seen a draw. And I said, if I'm being perfectly honest with you, Frank, and he knows it, I said, Joette cost himself the fight because he gave away three rounds. Absolutely. Then he clearly lost the 10th round. Now you've lost four rounds clearly in the fight. You know, and the other fight, the, the math, other rounds are so close. The math says you have to win the other six rounds. Then yeah, if you're exactly. going to get the nod, so, unless there's knockdowns and 10-8 rounds. Absolutely. And, and, you know, Frank knows that he thought his guy pulled it out, which I can understand, because if he thought Joette won, it's not ridiculous. One judge had it that way. That's a 6-4 fight either way. I was just happy that when they read the cards, there wasn't some Looney Tune outlier score where we've <laughs> seen so many times where they say we have a split decision and one card is 6-4 and one card is 6-4 and the other card is like 9-1, which I've seen that happen. So the judges were fine with their scoring. And you know what? It wasn't like it was, uh, you know, in a home field advantage for either guy. That's it was right. a, a California fighter against a guy from Ghana, you know, fighting in, in the hinterlands of uh, Hinkley, Minnesota. So there was no uh, funny business there. And it, frankly, you know, the, the, uh, the, the judging panel were perfectly reasonable. Mark Nelson was the referee. He's one of the best referees in boxing. So there was no, nothing untoward. It was a close fight where the judges saw a couple of rounds slightly differently. And, uh, you know, in the case of Dog Bay, he was fortunate to be the one with his hand raised. If they had raised the hand of Joette Gonzalez, uh, we'd be having a similar conversation probably about Joette Gonzalez. Uh, I don't think that, that the lo any loss at that level is a tough loss. But it's a forgivable kind of loss. It's not going to – I don't think it's going to cause top rank to release him. I don't think it's going to prevent him from being able to be in another televised, you know, uh, eight, you know, co-feature featured fight on one of these shows uh he's gonna he's gonna decide what he wants to do but if he decides he wants to keep going i see no reason why he can't just dust himself off take a little rest get back in the gym try to work on a few things and uh and come back and uh and give it another go big night for isaac dog bay earlier in the night on the top rank espn plus card saw giovanni cabrera score a 10 round lopsided decision over gabriel flores Again, I'm gonna. It's not. It's not often I get to do this. I get to tout. I had Cabrera, and I really thought, Dan, let's get into it in a recap mode. This was going to be over in the first round. The first punch of the fight essentially drops Gabe Flores seven or eight seconds into the fight. A straight left hand surprised him right in the smush, right in the in the face, uh, right in the nose, mouth. Dropped him on the seat of his pants. He got up. He was wobbly. Uh, he got staggered around later in the round. Dropped again. I, that that first round was a punch or two, a significant punch or two, I believe, from being stopped over first round stoppage, first round KO or TKO. So Flores survives, but really a dominant performance by Giovanni Cabrera. That's me saying that. Your thoughts in the recap on that, please. TJ, you're exactly right. It was uh, exactly everything that you just said. I mean, I think if you were watching that fighting, you thought anything other than, oh, wow, this fight might be over here in round one. Uh, you really haven't watched a lot of boxing. So a couple things. First and foremost, you have to give Gabe Flores credit for just having the heart to get through that all 10 rounds because he's a tough kid. There's no no one can question uh, the desire he has and and the, the, the inner fortitude to not give up, uh, which is um, after the way he lost his two fights ago when he took a really bad beating in his first defeat. It wouldn't have been a total shocker if he felt like he's in that similar situation and maybe 
he does decide to call it a day. But uh, to his credit, he showed enormous toughness and and heart to 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 deal with that. So that's that's the positive for for uh, for Flores. The negative for Flores is that he has just not ever been able to develop from the great hype and potential that he was uh, brought into the professional ranks with when he signed with Top Rank at age 16. And I was actually I talked to Todd DeBuff today, who was the president of Top Rank, and we were discussing the show. And I and uh, we were discussing this part in particular about Flores. And it, it struck me, and I mentioned this to him, I remember being at the news conference at the Wynn Hotel in Las Vegas uh, during the, the fight week when Manny Pacquiao fought Jesse Vargas. And Top Rank was announcing, uh, they did a press conference for uh, Gabriel Flores, who at that time had become in the you know 40-plus year history, now 50-plus year history of Top Rank, at that time, the youngest fighter that they had ever signed. That record has since been eclipsed uh, by Xander Zayas and maybe even one other fighter. But the point was, he signed at age 16. They put off his professional debut a little bit, I think, till he was 17. But he came into the pros with as much hype and promise and uh, expectations as anybody. And he just was never able to fully develop to get to the point where you could make him a contender. He took a terrible beating two fights ago, and he took, in this fight against Cabrera, another terrible beating. Uh, and at, at 22, look, I have nothing bad to say about Gabe. I have nothing bad to say about his dad. You know, I like those guys. I've, I've known them for a few years. Uh, and so I, I don't take any any joy in this, but that kid needs to find a day job because it's all over for him as a professional boxer. And I'm mm -hmm. not trying to say that in an emotional way or I'm not trying to be, uh, uh, you know, uh, to make it like bigger than it is or, you know, to to I'm just keeping it real. Like I'm not, I'm not trying to hype it. You I mean, don't see the potential to turn it around and no. become great. It's no, not none. there. And you, and you just, are uh, tremendously qualified on what you've seen throughout 20 plus it is, years. It is just not there. Yeah. You cannot, you cannot say anything bad about the kid's heart and desire. Right? This is not about that. And I'm not trying to be a, a mean or nasty or anything like that. I'm not trying to exaggerate, but when you watch what he took at that age in that first loss, and then you see the way he reacted in this fight. It's just not there. It's just not there. And Doesn't, Timothy Bradley. I think one of the things uh, that this is a concern is he doesn't hit hard enough to begin no. with. And then he and, and I thought it was interesting in the corner uh, with his father, where his father was saying, you got to move out of the way. You're, you're lined up right in front of him. I'm paraphrasing. You're in a line right with him. You're not moving your head. You're not moving your body. He's taking shots. Um, and again, you're far more qualified than I am, but I've been watching the sport for a long time. It, it just, some people, uh, unfortunately, uh, in business, let's just put it like this for the peeps, for the people that are out there. It's known as the Peter principle. You ever heard the Peter principle talked about at right business up. school, which means yep. you promote to a certain level where you're now underqualified to be there. You should not be there. You don't have the skills. You don't have the expertise. You don't have the experience. What is the you old thing? Should, you shouldn't be there. You're, you're promoted to the level of your incompetence. That's correct. Okay, now, so somebody, we may on, be somebody, being cruel, but are we talking about Gabriel Flores has now gotten to a higher level of opponent in two different divisions, and it's rather obvious he's not hitting hard enough and skilled enough to take the next steps and become great and become a champion, thing. and that's here's, essentially what you're saying. Here's right? why it's such a concern. He hasn't lost to star-level opponents. He's not okay. losing to top, top contenders. Now, I'm not knocking Luis Lopez, who is now a featherweight mandatory in the IBF, and I'm not knocking Giovanni Cabrera. 
but let's not fool ourselves into thinking that he was losing to bona fide world champions or to the number one contender. He was losing to just good, solid professionals. And the fact that he's, it's again, not every loss is the same. Had he gone in there and it was a Joet Gonzalez, Isaac Dogbay kind of fight, close, competitive, back and forth. You could see it either way, maybe a draw, six, four, one way or the other, no knockdowns, nobody's really badly hurt or anything like that. And it was just maybe a few seconds here or there that switched around the scoring of a round or two and you lose a hard luck decision. That's an entirely different story than when you take an ass kicking. And so if you think I'm qualified to discuss that based on my experience of watching and covering boxing for as long as I have, I will say that somebody like Timothy Bradley Jr., a multi-division, multi-time world champion, former pound-for-pound level fighter, somebody who I believe should be in the Boxing Hall of Fame, who I have voted for Mm -hmm. in the Boxing Hall of Fame, who does a very fine job in his analysis for the ESPN broadcast. He himself said that Gabriel Flores is now taking regularly life-altering punishment. Life-altering punishment. You, you, you don't play boxing, as they say. And again, not trying to be cruel. This is the level that Flores is at. And it's not going to get any better for him. And as he, he continues got cracked, to, take these to your point, he got cracked on that left eye in like the ninth round. And you were, you were wondering and worried, is that a fractured eye orbital? Because as Joe Tessitore pointed out on the call of the fight, that thing has swollen in 30 seconds yep. grotesquely here where he's having trouble seeing out of it already. And that's what Bradley was talking about. And Bradley even said, paraphrasing here, this is a real concern that this guy's not going to be able to do anything at lightweight. He doesn't hit hard enough. He's getting hit like this. Again, against an up-and-coming fighter, it's a real concern. All right, no, I'm not trying it. to be overly dramatic. And I, I know it's only, you know, somebody might say it's two losses. He's only 22. Again, age and whatever, losses are not all the same. If these were close calls or maybe maybe he lost a tough where he took a little bit of a beating against one guy, but he comes back against Cabrera. And by the way, I'm not blown away by Cabrera either. Now, congratulations to him. He did a hell of a job. Okay, let me interrupt. Let me interrupt. We're doing the same thing that ESPN did on the broadcast, which I thought was wrong. And I don't know who, if it was the producer that told Bernardo Osuna to go talk to Gabe Flores first. You don't ever talk to the loser, especially not when he's a champion. I don't agree with that because he may have been able to, they want to get him out of the ring for medical reasons. Okay, maybe, but then talk to him later. Talk to him later. The moment was Cabrera's moment for the great. I've been around enough live events to know that what we see on TV doesn't necessarily match up with the way that the plan went, what the rundown went, what the production went, what was available. So I'm not, I have no opinion about them interviewing. I'm just saying in general, we should talk about the winner just in general. But but Flores was the A side. So it's more dramatic for him to lose the way he did. Than it was the way that okay. If that's the reason, and it's not a medical reason, then I'm coming right back at you. Then that's a bigger win for the guy that beat him on the A side. Go talk to the winners first. Go talk to the winners first. And we have just spent ten minutes talking about Gabriel Flores when the guy that fought him very nearly knocked him out in the first round. Because Gabriel Flores was the hot prospect at one time, and now his career is basically over. All right. So let's move to Cabrera. And the fact that he did look, and I saw some of one of his fights earlier, he did look like a different fighter to a degree. And they talked about this on the broadcast. So tell me what you saw real quick and tell me about what you think his future is in victory go. Well, part of the reason that it's a different uh, look, I guess, is that's got to be attributed in large measure to whatever the game plan that was implemented by Freddie Roach, who is more of an offensive minded coach, obviously a hog, you know, one of the great trainers of uh, of our times, uh, uh, an obvious Hall of Famer who's been in the Hall of Fame for many years already, best known for Pacquiao, but many other fighters that he has trained through the years. And he's probably uh, pretty pleased with the job that, that Cabrera did. Uh, all that said, I felt like as, as 
nice of a win as that was for Cabrera and to, to issue that kind of beatdown to Gabriel Flores, I was sort of like shocked and amazed that he didn't get the guy out of there. At, first of all, went the distance that he should have had Flores out of there in like the fifth round when he dropped him for the third time right. and the fight was basically all done and the guy could barely stand and, you know, his legs were shaking. He was just taking all kinds of punishment. So, you know, the negative is that you didn't stop the guy. You know, when, when we both went on our BetUS show and we make our picks and we both picked the over, uh, the fact that that first round ended and there was I thought it was done in the first round. I told I was you shocked. that earlier in the podcast. I thought no, I but was even cooked. after that, when the second round went and he was still beating him up in the third round and then he drops him again in the fifth round, I'm like, we're going to get our over-under, but it's not it's not going the way we thought it would. That fight should have been a knockout at, at, at many different times Cabrera should have had the guy out. All that said, look, he stays undefeated. He wins a fight on national, you know, on a, on a not televised, I guess, but an ESPN plus on the main card, uh, you know, uh, in front of uh, probably a pretty good audience and top rank certainly is uh, going to use him again. And he's again, 21 and 0, and he has a solid victory on his record now against Flores. Although, you know, in the, in the future, I'm not sure how meaningful that will be given where Gabe is at in his career. But, you, you know, he went out and he did the job. He, he went out there and he kicked his ass. That's the bottom line. And he gets a win. He stays undefeated. Uh, showed some humility afterwards. You know, uh, you know, gave Gabe Flores credit for being, you know, the warrior that he was in that fight. Uh, because all the things we're talking about Flores, nothing is to do with his, uh, the lack of heart that this kid showed. Oh, sure. Um, and, and Cabrera, uh, you know, gave him a terrible beating and, and won the part fight. part of it, tell me your thought here before we move on and before we get out of here. I think part of it was he was in control. He had hit uh, Flores with a bunch, but he had not been able really to, to hurt him in the middle rounds. You worry about fatigue yourself. Did he punch himself out early? And then he's probably partially concerned, and fighters talk about this all the time, the only way that I lose this now is if he hits me with a haymaker, if something big changes the fight. And so maybe he was a little more cautious because he knew I've banked six or seven rounds with three knockdowns, don't don't risk getting knocked out here going for the knockout yourself. Do you buy some of, mm. even though he didn't say that, do you buy that as a possible explanation? I don't buy that. And I say that because he had felt whatever, whatever level of power that Gabriel Flores had for a few rounds. I think it was pretty clear that Gabriel Flores is not going to be a, uh, you know, not a knockout puncher. Right. Now, unless if he caught him with something he didn't see, anybody can get knocked mm -hmm. out. But as long as you maintain your vision and your, and your boxing the way you're supposed to box, I don't think there was any prayer that Gabriel Flores was going to knock uh, Giovanni Cabrera out in that fight. So I don't buy that. I think he would have liked to get a knockout knowing Freddie Roach, how I know Freddie Roach. I'm sure he wanted him to get a knockout. Just didn't happen. But again, the main thing is this, and this is always the way it is. You win the fight. He That's won the right. fight. He's undefeated. He moves on. And uh, who's got you know, the lightweight hand up light, at the end? Yes. Yeah. Listen, lightweight is a hot division. There's, a, there's, you know, Devin Haney is the undisputed champion of the world, but there's good talent in that weight class. Top rank is involved with a lot of that talent in that weight class. And so he puts himself in a pretty good position. I mean, they'll get another opportunity. Now I can't tell you which opponent it's going to be, but you can be damn sure that when it comes time for his name to be called in the next fight, you know, he's going to be back in a, in a similar kind of probably televised situation and uh, hopefully, you know, take another step up. More importantly, he's, he's to the point now where he can start making some money. Love it. We got to get out of here in a moment. You wanted to say something else too. Ryan Garcia still on social media, tank <laughs> Davis firing back a little bit here and there. All right. So say whatever you want to say about this in, in closing here, because the barbs are still <laughs> flying. I, I see the chuckle. I hear the chuckle. Go ahead. I, I listen as we were talking about before we started to tape this, I said, I've been, I've been following what's been going back and forth. Now, like you said, tanks made a couple of comments about it, but Ryan 
uh, look, comes off of a, a very impressive performance in his victory against Javier Fortuna. And ever since that fight, it's been a nonstop stream of stuff from him about how he wants to do this, how he wants to do that. Stuff from his promoter, Oscar De La Hoya, talking about the same stuff. You've seen comments from uh, the, the uh, Tank Davis camp, whether it's Floyd Mayweather going on and doing a YouTube video or Leonard Ellerby. And it, there's been so much discussion and it's only been a week and I already want to throw up. All I want them to do is shut <laughs> the heck up, go in a room together or get on a Zoom call together or, or on the telephone talking about and it. just make the fight or stop talking about bullshit. it. Yes. Or stop talking about it. One of the two. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm all for a little bit of hype. But what, what drives me crazy is I know that this is nothing but hype and there's not going to be a real fight, in my opinion. Prove me wrong, please. Yeah. Yep. That's all I was saying. All right. I'm with you on that. Um, other than that, I think we're good on this. This is a week upcoming, by the way, when we look ahead to the preview. Danny Garcia is back at the Barclays Center for the first time in over a year and a half uh, that he will be back in the ring. You talked to him recently. We played it uh, here as part of the Big Fight Weekend podcast feed. That fight coming. Uh, let's talk about crossroads. Talk about find a nine-to-five job. I don't know if he's going to have to find one. Adam Konofsky. Uh, as the heavyweight contender is in the co-feature on this card in much need of a victory. And if he doesn't get it, is his career basically done? He's older than Gabe Flores. But we're interested just real quick and wrap it up uh, in previewing those fights later in the week on the website and on the preview podcast. Yeah, listen, it's, uh, you know, for, uh, again, dog days of summer, uh, Danny Garcia going back to Barclays Center where he opened the building, you know, a dozen years ago or so with his great knockout of Eric Morales in their uh, rematch. And, uh it isn't Jose Benavides. It's an evenly matched fight sort of between guys who have come up from the smaller weight classes. Danny has got designs on being a champion in the 154 pound weight class. And he wants to get his uh, 154 pound campaign off to a good start with that main event. As you mentioned, Konaski is fighting uh, the, uh, the Turkish Olympian, uh, Ali Aaron Demarezian. Um, not that, I don't think that's, that's a fight that Konaki should win, but I guess there's some questions because of what's he got left after the two rough knockout losses against Robert Hellenius. And then of course you got the great uh, blue chipper, you know, undefeated, uh, I guess, prospect slash train. I refer to him as like a prospect transitioning into a contender because he just beat Victor Postal and that's Gary Antoine Russell, uh, you know, in a featured fight. That's the opening fight of this triple header against the uh, two divisional uh, world title holder, Rancis Bartholomew. Um, look, the A sides are the guys that I'm interested in, you know, and let's see if the B-sides can do something to make me interested in them. More time to preview that later in the week. Again, the recap podcast is always here coming off of the weekend, hence the name, usually out late Sunday night, Monday for you, as we always do. Anything else, Mighty One, in closing? Are we ready for everybody? to? Co- We're going to close out the month of July this week. We're going to close out I'm, July I'm ready to be to August. How about that? Here we go, August. Here we come. We are looking forward to everything that's going to happen this weekend and then in the month of August as we head towards the fall and some of the bigger bouts, whether that's Joshua Usyk later in August for the Unified Heavyweight title, Triple G, and Canelo oh, Alvarez. Hello I just, in September. Uh, I just did my travel for the Triple G Canelo fight. I look forward to it. I will be there Wednesday of fight week. I can't wait. About that? All right. We're anxious for all of that. And then we eventually hopefully get to a Spence Crawford fight before the year is done, too. Things are looking up. And again, follow or subscribe right here. Last Reminder, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Haney Cambosis 1, because it looks like Haney Cambosis 2 is coming in October. Fight poster for the first fight where Devin Haney became the first uh, undisputed lightweight champion for belts. 
since three belt error of what Pernell Whitaker 1990 you keep telling me so this yes, is sir. obviously a collector's item for when Haney won the four belts uh in uh earlier this summer summer of 2022 somebody's going to get the fight poster at random if you've rated us and reviewed us since june anybody in june is eligible anybody in july is eligible take 90 seconds go to apple Podcasts. tell them what a phenomenal human being dan rayfield is give us five <laughs> stars and then tag us on social media show us a screenshot tag us on social media somebody's going to win i again point out you can go and look on our social media that uh, Homer, one of our listeners on the podcast, uh, who's actually an attorney not far from where you are in exactly. D.C., he's a young attorney, he rated and reviewed the podcast at random. We drew his name. He had screenshotted that. We contacted him, and he got the Tyson Holyfield hat from 1996 from their first fight, a tremendous collector's item from now 26 years ago. So, again, the Haney Cambosis poster is a little more recent, but it's still a neat collector's item to have oh, yeah. a few years back. It is not the WBC Muhammad Ali belt for Jim Ursay for $6 million, but it's still a nice collector's item. That's and it's point. free. Somebody's going to win. And if it's, and free, it's free, I'll take three. Somebody's going to win. Uh, just rate us and review us, screenshot it, tag it, so we can see you, and we'll draw someone at random later this week, peeps. I'm promising later this week we're drawing for the Haney Cambosis poster. With that, my friend, have a good week. Always appreciate you, the insight, Dan. You bet, my man. All right, and we thank you for listening on Fight Freaks Unite and the Recap. Bye.